Hi, Peter. Hi, Liz. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I was going to ask you how you're doing, but I feel like in keeping with the webinar we'll be discussing today, I feel like I it would be better to ask you what's true of you today. Mm. Wow. What's true of me today is, well, I think you've already experienced this. I'm, I am very, my, my mind is very scattered. I'm very disorganized. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I feel like things are falling apart all around me. Uh -huh. um, and at the same time, you know, strangely, I, I feel I, I feel pretty um, peaceful about things. So mm -hmm. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation and um, the mess will just hopefully take care of itself. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, peace in the midst of chaos is probably the best we can hope for in this yes. day and age. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Nice. How about you? Um, what's true of me today? Also feeling that chaos, um, sick children being home for part of the week has like been very disruptive for mm -hmm. my life. Yeah. Um, but I have just spending some time reviewing like Cole Arthur Riley and reviewing mm -hmm. the webinar has had like a very lovely grounding effect. Nice. So I feel good. I feel focused. I'm grateful to have a space to talk about this, her and her work and this webinar she did, which I thought mm -hmm. was amazing. So yeah. I'm glad, yeah. glad to be here. Um, so as I just alluded to, we're going to be spending the bulk of our conversation today talking about this webinar, which she gave in person. You got to hear in person, which I yes. love as part yeah. of the first in-person gathering for this um, iteration of the Faith and Justice Network. Mm -hmm. um, I want to start by saying that I love her. <laughs> um, I'm very drawn to introverts, um, I think, because there's something very like um, just like mysterious and compelling about them as like yeah. a, the raging extrovert that I am. But on top of that, she just has like such a grounded and centered presence. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this comes through a lot in her writing um, and also in her speaking presence. Um, so um, I love the choice of her book and her as a speaker for this month. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I just feel really grateful that like I've gotten to experience this individually and also in like some of the conversations online. Yeah, it was a real honor to be with her. It just felt like um, she was, you know, she seems like the kind of person who does a lot of work to show up for things um, and it really comes across. And so I think grounded is a good word and someone who's mm -hmm. really thoughtful and mm -hmm. uh, open to uh, like very perceptive. It comes through in the book, but also in person and in conversation with her. So it was a real treat and honor to be with her. I love that. I love that. Um. There were a few clips from the webinar that you specifically took out um, and like, you know, put some questions on the online forum about, and I would love mm -hmm. to spend some time talking with you about them um, in part because they were also the things that stood out most to me. Yeah. Uh, and they were also the ones that raised the most questions for me. So mm -hmm. the first clip that you pulled out was about finding your true self um, mm -hmm. And specifically, she pulled out this Howard Thurman quote, which I really loved. I've not spent a lot of time in Thurman's work, um, but I, God, I'm very interested these days in like 
people from Christian traditions or really any traditions who offer a new perspective beyond mm-hmm. the pat Christian answers that kind of pervade evangelical and mainline Christianity, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I just, I feel mm-hmm. like he gave me like that. These quotes gave me some like new imagination and new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talked about waiting and listening for the sound of the genuine in yourself yeah. and how often there's so much traffic that um, makes it hard for us to do this. And he mm-hmm. asks this question of like, who are you yeah. and how does the sound of the genuine come through to you? Yeah. And Cole Arthur Riley spent some time talking about that, about the importance of finding your true self as like this moral imperative. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that really made sense to me and really resonates with me. But it also strikes me as something that's quite individualistic because I think this mm-hmm. idea of like finding yourself and, um, you know, like getting in touch with your true self is something that we hear a lot in yeah all spheres of life. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious, like how, you know, as somebody who like me grew up in like more of a collectivist culture, like how does this strike you? Like, how does this make sense to you? Um, Yeah. How do you, like when, when people talk about finding their true selves, like how does it strike you? And like, how do you make sense of it from your perspective? Yeah. Yeah. I love the question because I think it's deepening and expanding on what Cole Arthur Riley is trying to understand and hear in what Howard Thurman is saying is that Mm -hmm. there's so many ways in which the sound of the genuine comes through to us that we drown out by uh, because we've been trained um, to listen to other other voices. And so Mm -hmm. we submit to authoritative um, voices that may not be the most genuine to us. And I know that's been true in my experience Mm -hmm. um, growing up in a North American white um, Christian context, you're taught Mm -hmm to listen to certain kinds of voices. We've talked about this, Mm -hmm. but what that means is you're drowning out other voices Mm -hmm. and the permission that I think this invitation um, offers is really freeing. I think Mm -hmm. about the fact that as, um, you know, oftentimes when when I uh, found myself in various Christian contexts, I was very self-conscious about uh, being around other Asian Americans hmm. because it felt like um, it felt like the holy huddle. It felt like we were just, you know, kind of gravitating toward one another to the exclusion of other folks. Sometimes people would observe, oh, you guys are always, you know, uh, going off by yourselves. And there's something about that that made us, that made me self-conscious about not wanting to be um, exclus- exclusionary. What happened in that for me was I, I lost the ability to um, be at peace, to be comfortable uh, being around people that um, were like me, and then also people who had uh, wisdom to offer in ways that would have been more meaningful to me or, mm-hmm. or just as meaningful to me. And so I think about that. I think about voices that I cut out of my life because... I was concerned about how it came across as exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then allowing the sound of the genuine to be present in in people who are like you and having permission to be, I mean, this is almost a dirty word now, but to be with having the freedom and the permission to be with your tribe mm-hmm. is something that um, I think maybe sometimes people of color, Asian Americans miss out on because mm-hmm. there's so much pressure 
um, to be more open and to be more present to uh, diverse spaces. I mean, I feel both sides of this. I, yeah. I feel many different things hearing you talk about this. On one hand, I've absolutely been on the receiving end of this critique. Like all y'all mm-hmm. Asians are always like isolating and what's that yeah. about? And I find it interesting because the critiques are almost always leveled from white people um, mm-hmm. who are never critiqued for, at the time at least, were never yeah. critiqued for only hanging out with other white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the kind of like hyper consciousness that that bred in me of like yeah. not being want not wanting to be perceived in that way and yes. also i think just the kind of like weird like i don't know i just avoiding other asians in public is like just, it's a very short um jump from that into just like internalized racism right and like mm-hmm. i cannot be seen with other asian people in public and um wow. i don't know like thinking you're doing a good job or doing right if you are avoiding other Asians and like wanting Mm -hmm. just being very used to being the only one and feeling special and like thinking that it makes you special. And I don't know, the short jump from that to like aspirational whiteness. So Mm -hmm. all this to say that um, I totally relate to this experience. Um, I perceive it to be if a little bit microaggressive, to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel grateful that we live in a time now when I think more and more folks are recognizing like the value of having these kind of like affinity group spaces yeah. where like it is good for us to be mm-hmm. connecting with folks who are like us and on similar journeys for all the reasons yeah. that you've talked about. Um, and also it is not good for us to live in those spaces all the time. So like how yes. in, in large gatherings, like, what does it look like to make room for people to have affinity space where it's so important to feel seen and validated and connected and get the kind of mentoring that you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, but then also to be connecting with other folks and learning from their experiences and, you know, all of all of those things, too. Yeah. So, um, yeah, all that to say that I feel many ways, multiple ways about what you just said. Yeah. I mean, the fact of the matter is, in many Christian circles, it was the case that affinity groups was a negative thing. Yeah. Like, even saying that came across as negative. And, and so to be in a place now where we're making space for affinity groups sounds like a, a new thing and, and in some ways um, uh, a transgressive act. Yes. Um, and I think the fact of the matter is we're go- there's going to be um, some ebb and flow. There's going to be a, a pendulum swing and we're bound to make mistakes. And maybe maybe mistakes is even th- the wrong way to think about it. There's bound to be um, swings in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what it means to um, embrace that. The fact that there's going to be it's going to be impossible to achieve perfect balance and equilibrium yeah. when it comes to these matters. And just giving ourselves space for that, I think, is going to be important. Yes. And recognizing that there are times when, like, um, more of one or more of the other is going to be important, right? Like, I think about, like, the post-Atlanta shootings, for example. Like, it was really important to be in a lot of affinity space for me. Like, I did not have many any patience for mm-hmm. to educate anybody about anything, Um and so, but, you know, and I think that's yeah. a time when like, like the pendulum swinging that way was very appropriate. Yeah. Um, and then there are times when that, you know, then I, when I think it's important to swing the other way. And so like, how do we be yeah. discerning about that? Um, 
and not expect ourselves, as you said, to always be in the same place or like to need the same ratio at all times, mm-hmm. I think is important. Yeah. I think awareness, awareness seems to be a, I think a, a huge first step in this. I've experienced the grace of uh, my friends who are white, who have acknowledged, who have recognized, oh, I don't experience this. I don't, ha- I don't find myself switching between spaces and having to engage in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, you know, and them saying that they can appreciate um, the complexity and the, the tricky dynamics involved in something like this yeah. is helpful. And just to have conversations where we're acknowledging and, and sharing in this awareness, I think is a, is a good way to begin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing that struck me as in, the, in, as I was listening to Cole Arthur really talk about this was, um, you know, as she was talking about, again, like the immoral imperative of finding your true self, I was thinking about like all of the evangelical spaces that I've been in, in the past who say that finding your true self is antithetical to the gospel, which is all mm-hmm. about dying to self. Yeah. Less of me, more of him, because in this yes. framework, God is always male. Um, yeah. So I guess I'm curious, like, how would you respond or how might you respond to evangelicals who say that, like, finding your true self is, like, actually the opposite of what we should be doing? Like, how would you explain to them mm. the kind of, like, moral and theological imperative that Cole Arthur Riley is talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the ways that this came across to me was through the doctrine of total depravity. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with this doctrine, um, but especially in Calvinist and Reformed circles, it's something that's mm-hmm. talked about um, quite um, casually and frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's always the elephant in the room whenever we're um, thinking about spirituality and matters related to faith. Mm-hmm. There's always this cautionary um, word about total depravity it's hard mm-hmm. for, this is this is dangerous work and it's fraught with all kinds of pitfalls because um, we as people are so fallen and I think frankly it's it's uh, it's a misuse of that doctrine hmm. um, because the same people who oftentimes harp on total depravity when it comes to their ability to um, to think uh, well about mm-hmm. God, to mm-hmm. write sound theology, th- there's there's no fear, there's no qualms about total mm. depravity getting in the way of that. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things that comes to mind is, uh, what would it look like to not be so encumbered by this fear of myself? I think that's the question that you're getting at. Mm. And I don't, yeah. frankly, I don't, uh, I don't have a lot of experience with this because I'm still very much. Um, coming out of that world, that fog mm. of being suspicious of myself all the time. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you have some experience with this as well. So I'd be curious to, to hear how you've navigated uh, this fear and suspicion of self. Yeah, I really appreciate you naming total depravity because I feel like that is at the core of it, right? At the core of this whole like dying to self is this like everything about me is bad and everything about yeah. God is good. And so therefore, mm-hmm. um, I need to make myself smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And yeah. for God or whatever God concept or my whatever, to, that to become bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that helps me better understand where that kind of impulse comes from in evangelical spaces. 
And I really appreciate you too naming that like total depravity is not equally applied mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And I would like take that a step further and say that it is like weaponized in some cases. I'm thinking specifically about like our queer siblings and how like so often the rhetoric is about like dying to di- like the self is sinful and dying to self and whatever, of course, because in this framework, like, you know, being queer is seen as a sin, which is not a theology that we affirm. Um, I I feel like so much of this, God, so much of my own unlearning of like and deconstruction is about like taking apart this idea that like everything about me is bad (laughs) and everything about my body is bad and everything like physical is bad and only what's spiritual is good. And I feel like a lot of it for me is about returning to this idea. Like the very beginning is that like God created everything good. And I think so much of my like rehabilitation in the last decade has been about like um, actually embracing the fact that like at the, in the beginning, everything is good. And um, we don't start from a, starting not from a point of like everything is about me is terrible, but like actually starting from a place where things are good. And Mm -hmm. what does it look like then? Um, And if starting from a place of like, if God created everything good, then like finding my true self is actually coming closer to the way that God created me. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. That's beautifully put. One of the ways that we can maybe do this work theologically is to say, to affirm to some degree, with some caution, the doctrine of sin or total depravity, but also recognize there's other beliefs that we have in our in our kit, in our toolkit. And one of those, another one that you reference is that we're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean to put those into conversation with one another? Or even, and then oftentimes I used to think of the fact that the opening of Genesis has um, the creation story where we are uh, made in the image of God. And then we are also made from the dust of the earth as kind of, mm-hmm. uh, and my take on this would sometimes be dualistic to say, uh, being image of God accentuates our um, the positive attributes of being human. And then the dust of the earth accentuates perhaps the negative um, aspects but i wonder if there's even positive virtuous aspects of being made from the dust of the earth yeah and there's something about being grounded in who we are and recognizing um, our dustness if you Mm -hmm. will can also Mm -hmm. be a really helpful and beautiful thing and so i love Mm -hmm. how you're pointing us back to some of that original dignity and beauty in how um, scripture tells us god made us yeah yeah yeah, which, God, brings me to the question, the, the last segment that you pulled out, which is specifically about the corruptions of Christianity. And I loved so many things about Cole Arthurelli's response to you. Um, I resonated especially with what you said about like finding meaning in so many different things and traditions and mm-hmm. how a lot of people maybe wouldn't call her a Christian yeah. because of like where she finds capital T truth and how she's like mm-hmm. interested in what it means to be human. Like that is exactly where I live at this point in my life. And so I just like, I really appreciate hearing all that from her. Um, your question was specifically about um, just this like, God, it was it, the way that you framed it was so interesting to me. Like this idea that like so many people would love to see like no Muslims exist because they would love to see all Muslims be Christian and ditto like yeah. every other religion. Yeah. And you used the word ethnocidal fantasy, which was not yeah. your word, somebody yeah. else's word. But Quoting it was Sylvester like, Johnson. Yes. But it was just like I just really appreciated you putting like the the language that language to that because that's really mm-hmm. what it is like this idea yeah. of like global successful like successful global evangelism mm-hmm. really 
it really is that. Yeah, and it we would can be see violent and devastating. Total, and it already has been right. There are so many cultures whose like traditions and um, practices have been completely like invalidated or, um, or eradicated because of like yeah. colonization and. Um, you know, I'm thinking, did you watch the Manti Teo documentary on Netflix? No, not yet. It's so good. Oh mm. my God, Peter. It's so good. Okay. I don't want to blow that for you. So let me, um, let me back up and like non-spoilerize this. It makes me think about <laughs> how in like, you know, in certain community, like Pacific Islander communities, for example, yeah. like there's been like a long tradition of like trans folks living their lives just fine. Yeah. And it wasn't until like Western colonization and um, evangelism mm -hmm. came through yeah. that folks were told that actually this isn't okay. And you have mm -hmm. to pick between male or female and like being yeah. trans is bad, you know? Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, just to your point that like all of this stuff is already, is yeah. it's violent and it's already happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the imposition of these Western theological categories are not actually Christian categories or, mm. or maybe really core to the message of Jesus. And so how do we tease those out and, yeah. uh, and understand, begin to understand that so much of the Christian message that we think is Christian is really entangled with culture or with other ideologies. I think it's really important to just recognize that. There's no, no such thing as culturalist Christianity. Christianity always lives in the context of the culture in which the people are its practitioners. Yes. And the implications of that are huge, right? Yes. Especially if you want to go out into the world and evangelize all the peoples of the world to your version of cultural Christianity. Which is so often sold as like the objective truth, neutral, yeah. culture-free, but it's not. It's completely imbued in certain cultural norms and practices that like are not talked about, but are also evangelized. Um. So in your discussion of this, like, I was just curious for you, um, you know, you are Korean American and I am also Asian American and like Christianity is in so many ways, like the faith of the colonizer, especially in Korea where like Western missionaries were very intentional about going and evangelizing. And so I'm curious for you, like what it like. What does it mean to you to practice the faith, faith of the colonizer? Like, how do you make sense of that in your own life? Especially as somebody who has like, this is your life. Like you are a pastor by trade. Like, how do you, how do you make sense of that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to be reductionistic or dualistic about this, but I'm going to go down that path for a little bit. Okay. Because I think there are ways in which Korean Christianity or particular Korean Christians have responded and lived out their Christian faith by committing to a way of mimesis or mimicking, imitating mm -hmm. the religion um, of their, their missionary teachers. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you know, uh, it wasn't all negative or, um, or manipulative. There was genuine openness to a new teaching. Okay, so let's, mm -hmm. let's acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was a sense in which if, if we're going to flourish in this new world, and in this new religious system, our best chances of exercising our agency and, and flourishing in this context is going to be by way of becoming like our teachers and mm -hmm. maybe even transcending our teachers. And there's talk mm -hmm. along these lines in 
um, in some of the writings and in some of the works of Korean Christians. So that's one side of the dualism. And the other side is, I think in, even in the midst of this, there were Christians or there were Koreans who became Christians who tried to understand uh, what the teachings of Jesus truly meant for their context and the ways mm -hmm. in which it critiqued and um, transformed and challenged the normative structures that they were flailing in the midst of. And mm. so um, trying to understand that, that tension, that duality, uh, I think is going to be, has been really important for me. And then at, at the end of the day, realizing, now stepping out of that dualistic miry pit, what does it look like to live honestly with hmm. the fullness of Christian teaching or the fullness of uh, Christian spirituality and mm -hmm. recognizing that we're not going to get, you know, we're not going to get full access. We're not going to mm -hmm. have a comprehensive understanding. And so I loved what um, Cole Arthur Riley did and said, she said, there are parts of the story that I don't really like. Yeah. And there are parts of the, of the Hagar story. She says she hates mm -hmm. on her behalf, on behalf yeah. of Hagar. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a wrestling there. And then there are other things like she talked about um, how she used to quote G.K. Chesterton or Flannery O'Connor. And I think um, her she didn't really extrapolate on this, perhaps. But I think that her uh, response to those texts and, and authors uh, might be somewhat different from her response to the texts of scripture. But even having a hierarchy there and saying, hey, there are some authors and some texts that I can just completely completely do away with, and that's okay. And then mm -hmm. there are some texts, like the Hagar story, that I'm going to have to contend with and wrestle with and live in yeah. the tension of. Yeah. And then having that sense of um, that messy hierarchy, I think, is uh, necessary and important as hard as it is. Hmm. Um, well, what do you think? How how do you navigate this? Because what you know when you were when you were framing the question earlier, and and you almost seemed to express remorse or guilt. I don't think that that's what you meant about being in a post Christian state or stage. Um, and I think it's post Christian according to the standards of a certain um, set or sect of Christendom, but. You know, like who 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 gets to decide that, right? And who gets to decide what truth is? And so the freedom that you, I feel like you are wading into um, is is a good and beautiful and virtuous um, freedom. And I just want I wonder if you you know I wonder how you think about that. That's a really good question. Um, I would not say that I feel remorse or guilt about it. Mm -hmm. Um at least not solely remorse or guilt. I feel like generally I, um, I really, it feels like freedom and it feels like the next like logical step in the journey for me specifically. Mm -hmm. And like, I get really excited about people like Cole Arthur Riley, who it feels like people like, other people from Christian traditions who are interested in this like very like wide and expansive like yeah we can learn from everybody and everything um perspective um but that doesn't mean it's not complicated right like i um you know i i still identify as a christian 
Yeah. I totally believe that many people would not see me as such in the same way that yeah. uh, Cole Arthur Riley said. Um, but I just think that, you know, my definition of what that means is just bigger. It's changed from what it was before. And I think that, you know, no matter how broad my worldview gets, like this is my starting point. You know what I mean? I, I, I This is like my entry point into all of these conversations is this story. So, um, yeah, it just makes, it just makes community hard. You know what I mean? Like if you, if you, if these are, if like, if you want to have spiritual conversations like this, I'm, where do you go necessarily? Right. Because there's a lot of churches where like, that's not the kind of conversation you'll have. And so, um, where do you go if you're interested Mm -hmm. in, in just having a, Maybe like broader, more ecumenical or, you know, conversation about what spirituality means. Right. Um, It is freeing, but it's also like lonely, which also kind of circles back into what Mm -hmm. Cole Arthur Riley was saying earlier in that like search for the genuine about how um, it can like separate you from communities who don't want to be destabilized, don't want to see you decolonized. so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, but it, it does. I mean, there are some there are some Christians who want clear definitions, mm-hmm. which is another way of saying they want clear boundaries. Hmm. Um, and the kind of work that you're describing and that Cole Arthur Riley is involved in, it seems like to me anyway, um, is transgressive of these boundaries mm-hmm. and wanting to find truth and beauty and meaning anywhere it can be found. And yeah. there's something very. Um, disruptive about that so i love hearing you say not because i have some alternative missionary agenda but i just love (laughs) hearing you say like you still identify yourself as a christian Mm -hmm. one of the things i'm realizing is i think that i'm still an evangelical and Mm. i I, to articulate it like this sounds a little bit scandalous and Mm. i don't know i don't know how it, it, it comes across to you um, like I've heard you say, and I, I think this is right, like you became a Christian later in life. And in many ways, the evangelical part of the identity that you took on was um, was an imposition, right? It was an extraneous layer. I think my experience has been different because I grew mm-hmm. up in evangelical dumb. And I can't, mm-hmm. you know, it's I can't just cast it off and say I'm no longer um, part of this because I don't like certain aspects or attributes of it. And so uh, for me to understand the ways in which I'm, if I search deep within me, there are still what many traditional evangelicals, whatever that means today, would identify as core evangelical beliefs. And I Mm. think that those are pretty steadfast in my, in my heart of hearts. And so I'm kind of reckoning with that and Mm. trying to make sense of what that means um, for my life um, and for the work that I do. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you saying that because like, that's like a really hard thing in the year of our Lord 2022 to acknowledge that if anything, you are <laughs> yes. feeling more evangelical maybe, or more gen- yeah. a, a more Egypt- yeah. evangelical identified than you have previously. Like, how does that feel mm-hmm. to you in the current landscape yeah. we're in? Yeah. It's not a triumphalistic declaration. I feel like there's a <laughs> lot of regret and, and embarrassment and shame and uh, guilt and all of those things. And so yeah. it's complicated, very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That's, yeah, that's so, yeah. Oof, God, I have like eight different thoughts. Um, I feel like a lot of us 
see the dumpster fire that is American evangelicalism and we're like, peace, we're out. I count Mm -hmm. myself among them. Um, I think it's much harder to stay and be like, this is my house. This is my family that's on fire. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate um, like you staying behind, so to speak, to try Mm -hmm. to like wrestle with the, with all of it. Right. Because um, I have not. You're telling me I'm going (laughs) to burn. (laughs) But you know, like I, if it is going to be fixed, it's going to be because like thoughtful people have chosen to stay. Right. And um, I appreciate that you have taken that, that you willingly or unwillingly are taking that upon yourself. I appreciate that you are not turning away in shock and horror. No. <laughs> and I also no. appreciate that you're naming the complexity of what it means to be on this. Um, maybe we can call it a spectrum mm. um, and this landscape that is constantly shifting and moving around us. And we're trying to situate ourselves and, and find a way to both stand and to walk. And it's not easy. Um, yeah, but I'm really thankful for friends like you and conversation partners like Cole Arthur Riley who help us, mm-hmm. who light the path in front of us. 